0: I'm like, who am I without this? Yeah, just thankful that I'm able to to live that life. You live in the moment and keep your eyes on the horizon.
1: The power of connecting with something. Kind of
0: like a breakthrough. The
1: ultimate acknowledgement of truth. Welcome back to the Offshore Insights Podcast, where we share captivating individuals and stories connected by water. I'm your host, Stephen Luth, and I'm stoked to have you join us. It's great to touch base with all of you again, and I hope you've had an awesome and enjoyable summer season, or winter, I suppose, depending on which side of the equator you're on. While I am aiming to achieve a regular cadence of consistent episodes and content in general, I've had some recent life developments arise. And as a result, I've had a few too many moving pieces at one time for me to stay on top of my production consistency. After all, this is truly just a passion project for me. And sometimes you gotta shift priorities to heed the lessons and opportunities that life has put on your doorstep and or pay the bills. But nevertheless, we're back and I've got a great episode in store for you today. I have a few more very exciting guests and episodes to come as well in the near future. So I hope you will join us for those as well. And please remember to tell a friend about the show or share something you find interesting from the episodes. In today's episode, I catch up with an old friend of mine, Zach Plopper. Born and raised in Southern California, Zach has spent his life enjoying the pleasure of riding ocean waves all around the world. As a surfer, he has competed globally at the professional level and has written for publications such as Transworld, Slide, Surfer's Path, and others. This life spent immersed in the elements led to a natural gravitation towards other ways to celebrate and protect the environments he loved so dearly. To begin, he earned a BA in Urban Studies and Planning from UCSD and later an MA in Urban Planning from UCLA. In a slight twist of fate, Zach wound up sharing a surf session with the founder of a young but prominent local nonprofit named Wild Coast. Shortly thereafter, in 2008, Zach joined the Wild Coast team as the Wildlands Conservation Program Manager, helping them to conserve over 50,000 acres and 35 miles of coastline on Baja California's Valle de los Sirios Pacific coast. In 2012, he began to serve as Conservation Director, becoming instrumental in improving the management and implementation of California's 545,280 acre Marine Protected Area Network, as he continues to support coastal and marine conservation efforts in the Mexican Pacific as well. In our discussion, we cover a wide range of conservation and environmental topics that Wild Coast works to address, and we take a dig into the psychological soil of our culture and collective humanity where there resides an unsettling amount of questions and concerns about the future of our planet and our role as a species within it. I'm not gonna lie. there are certainly moments within the episode and aspects of this subject matter that are grim and can leave one feeling disturbed and uncertain about the future to say the least. But that being said, even as a self-described optimistic realist on a good day, I was able to find some seeds of optimism and glistenings of positive light at the end of the tunnel by the time we finish our discussion. So don't give up faith too soon. Zach and I gathered for this discussion in part because we could all use an honest, clear-minded look at the realities of what's going on in our global environments. Additionally, I believe it's imperative that we learn to sit openly with the discomfort that facts and truths expose us to and really examine our connected nature with the global communities and the species of our planet. This is Spaceship Earth, so what role do we want to play how will we participate, and what can we contribute, while still finding a way to enjoy the ride? So without further ado, I give you episode 13 with Zach Plopper. Welcome, Zach, to the Offshore Insights. Thanks, Evan. Thanks for coming on. I um, really appreciate you taking the time in between putting out some uh, fires of various sorts in your life yeah. <laughs> and taking two, care of Two-year-old two fires in my household. Yeah, a couple of jugglings, a couple of fires. Sure, yeah. yeah. Um, I was thinking that uh, starting out, maybe it'd be cool if you could just introduce yourself however you prefer to be introduced.
0: Okay. Um, So I'm Zach Plopper. I'm professionally, I'm conservation director at Wild Coast. I've been uh, in that role and other roles at Wild Coast for for 10 years, since 2008. Uh, That came about after studying urban planning as a graduate student at UCLA and before that at UCSD and being a lifelong surfer and absolute fan of the ocean and fan of traveling and having an incredible opportunity, um, at wild coast to kind of put those all into practice professionally, uh, while helping to conserve coastal marine ecosystems and wildlife, uh, with a, a primary focus on the U S and Mexico, but we have, uh, hopefully our projects influence other places and have more of a
1: global impact seems like you did pretty well to combine all that. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> That's quite the hybrid niche that you wound up uh, finding yourself in as far as a surfer alone.
0: Yeah, it, yeah. Um, I find myself extremely fortunate. It, it was uh, 2007 or 2006 when I was trying to figure out what I'm going to write my thesis on as a graduate student. And I ran into Serge Dedina, who's executive director at Wild Coast, founder of Wild Coast, out at Trestles one day. Um, we're kind of talking about what I'm studying, and, and Wild Coast was just getting started to look at a really remote region in Central Baja, California and Mexico, uh, to protect this vast coastal desert wilderness region against an onslaught of threats stemming from the Escalera Nautica project, which was the nautical ladder. It was a, a, a major coastal development plan to put marinas, 20-some marinas, up and down the Baja California wow. Peninsula, including a lot of these points in wow. this region. And, and this was happening right when you met her, or it was about to begin. Yeah, it was just yes. just getting started. and
1: What are the odds of that?
0: Yeah. <sighs> and so Wild Coast was, was kind of positioned to being a binational organization to not only stop this project, but, but protect this region right. in perpetuity. Yeah. And so what I did as a graduate student was, was identify, do a lot of lit review on conservation strategies that could be applicable there, do a lot of stakeholder analysis, a lot of field trips to the region, identifying areas of, of biological significance and areas that are at, more at risk of development. And then that 70-some page document led to my position full-time at Wild Coast in 2008. It was also kind of our guiding document to get that project going 10 years later. Awesome pilot project. It was a lot of fun. Five years doing five to ten trips down to that region. Wow, what a treat. Incredible surf and just absolutely... that. The whole value of wilderness there, um, you know, you can't necessarily put a price on it. Oh, absolutely. But just seeing those landscapes without a building, without a human being, the scale changes completely. You know, you see a hillside in the distance and Mm. it's like, is that a day's walk or is that an
1: hour's walk away? Yeah. So just stepping back a little bit here, what can you give us the general kind of who, what, why we of of Coast and, and the kind of functionality of it? Yeah. The, you know, main focus. Of it.
0: Sure. Yeah, so Wild Coast was founded in 2000 by, by Sarah Sedina, who's still our executive director today, as well as Wallace J. Nichols, who wrote Blue Mind, a um, very popular book, and uh, our missions to conserve coastal marine ecosystems and wildlife. We do it really three ways. We establish and manage protected areas uh, we advance conservation policies that kind of help in the management of those protected areas or improve the management of those protected areas. And we engage local communities in every aspect of, of that work through stewardship projects. And so we're a binational registered nonprofit in the United States as well as in Mexico. Our, our office in the U.S. is in Imperial Beach in South San Diego County. And then we have an office in Ensenada as well as La Paz down in Southern Baja, Valtulco and. Um, in Oaxaca. Wow. And, expanding quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. That's we have a awesome. staff of 22 now. Wow. And... That's
1: substantial for nonprofit. Yeah. Yeah. A lot we've, of people don't realize.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and so we work on, on coral reef conservation, protecting sea turtle nesting beaches, coastal wilderness, like that region I was talking about, offshore wilderness, like our marine protected areas here in California. Uh, incredible places to visit, to yeah.
1: see, and to to know that they're going to be protected through this work. Well, so I mean, in general, it just seems like obviously that's a really important role to be playing collectively as an organization. But obviously, your position is really special as well, um, given that that was kind of your kind of your baby project, right? Like it was a bit of your own. You could take some ownership of it in the beginning phases of it. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think that's a good case example to kind of look at the way that that a mechanism like a nonprofit can help change public policy in Mexico? Because obviously it was a very unique time in Mexico and maybe you can shed some light on just the history that was going on and Mm -hmm. how that all integrated into becoming so dynamic.
0: Yeah, so so I'll answer that second part first. So um, this was 2008, so there's the global economic crisis. So a lot of these investors and these big projects all over Mexico and really all over the world were pulling out. And so for us, a lot of landowners in that region had been promised millions of dollars for the new golf course, new cruise ship terminal, and the new mega development that was gonna go in. Keep in mind that this is a region that is so remote, there's no water, there's zero infrastructure, and projects like that are just so far-fetched that it wasn't, wasn't realistic. So it's not that we're, I'm anti-development, it's just it needs to be done appropriately and sustainably not the case here. Um, and and on top of that, Mexico is experiencing this wave of, of violence and the fear mongering in the United States with the media. And so people weren't going to these places anymore. Right. So for from a conservation perspective, it allowed us to move in and pay equitable value for land. Right. That, that project we ended up protecting to date, it's about 55,000 acres, 30, wow. 35 miles of coastline. Wow. Mostly through direct land purchases, um, a couple conservation easements, mm-hmm. and those are those are voluntary agreements with landowners that that restrict what they can and can't do on their property, um, for the purpose of conservation. Right. And sometimes there's a financial incentive paid with that. But mm-hmm. mostly um, direct land purchases. So, Wild Coast um, Mexican division
1: outright owns the titles to those lands. Gotcha. So it's not like a U.S. entity owning right. that land. Yeah. And we set up our and can it still be seized back by the government at, after a certain point or is there restrictions um, on the ownership? The, the restriction on the ownership is
0: that is that not we can't develop it. Ah, yeah, yeah. yeah right. But there's the
1: stipulations going into it.
0: There's stipulations yeah. going into it. And it's actually the interesting thing about these threats to important ecosystems in Mexico. A lot of these areas are already protected through some sort of federal protected area. Really? So there's vast regions of Baja, essentially from El Rosario, if you know Baja, that's about five hours south of the border, all the way down south of San Ignacio Lagoon, which hmm. is 18 hours, 15 hours south of the border, is protected. There's the Viscaino Biosphere Reserve and the Valle de los Sirios um, protected area. I had no idea. And together, it's about 12 and a half million acres of protected land, but... They're paper parks, really. Right. So they're on paper, they exist as protected areas. Yeah. the, the Mexican National Park Service has very limited capacity and staff yeah. to be able to effectively manage these huge, vast areas. Sure. So within these so areas... The actual enforcement of those protections right. is another story. Right. So yeah. there's, there's mining,
1: there's hotels, there's all, a um, lot of... Well, and then, you, of course, you've got the issue of corruption with the Mexican government to talk about.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and so, it's, so our, what we're really doing is we're putting additional protective layers on top of those that already exist. So right. establishing a federally decreed protected area is a great start, not enough. We right. can buy land in that. So let's buy land to conserve those key areas that are most at risk. Right. Um, and then there's other stuff you can do on top of that. An example being there's a, a lot of land that we couldn't buy for whatever reason in that region. But we worked with a archaeologist to actually register archeological sites on other properties. Ah. And so now if, if someone wants to develop that property, they need to get an added layer of permission from the That's National Archaeological Institute. A little in there. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's never ending. You got to add layer upon layer upon layer. Wow. And the same goes here in, in California, United States. So right. the example right. with with um, with trestles and I'm sure we, yeah, we can right. talk that about that later. Example. Yeah. State Park. Right. But you can apparently build a toll road through the middle right. of it. Thank right. God that didn't happen because yeah. that would have changed the precedent for state parks across the across California. Right. Um, but it shows an example. You got to you got to add these layers yeah. and completely completely be fighting for it. Um, Peter Douglas was a environmental champion, former commissioner, um, commissioner of the Coastal Commission. And, and he has a, a quote that places aren't saved, they're always being saved. Right. So it takes continuous yeah, it's management, an active, ongoing process, yeah. continuous new
1: strategies right. to do so. Well, I definitely wanna to get to the trestles bit, um, but that one I think is a little more concise in terms of just explaining and more people a little, are a little more mm-hmm. privy to it, I think. Mm-hmm. At least, <laughs> it's very biased for me to say, but at least locally and it was kinda of got some publicity. But mm-hmm. to kinda of get back to your Baja experience, um, I'm just curious, as you were talking about it, and we kind of just breezed over the component of uh, you know, high crime driving a lot of people out, what was that like? Were there ever points when you guys were doing work down there where you felt threatened or endangered? Because, I mean, this was a very real spike in cartel activity. It wasn't just sensationalism. I mean, right. there absolutely was sensationalism, and it was totally exaggerative as it likes to be, but yep. there was a real component, too. And I know that I, having grown up my whole life going down there with my dad, I've um, always felt really comfortable, but yeah. even during that period, I took a bit of a hiatus and just was like, well, you know, Yeah, what's what, to what avail, you know, what's yeah. the point? What am, I, <laughs> am yeah. I really risking? Yeah, yeah
0: it's, um, you know, it was it Really, in all honesty, we had zero Experience with anything awesome. sketchy yeah. at all, right? There was certain some circumstances that would happen that would have happened right, regardless kind of right of the exactly yeah. but There's a couple uh, bribes here and there a couple yeah and very few of that actually in right. all my years uh only once and it was the first trip i took and i had just gotten my sentry pass and that's like a fast pass sure. for the border um that expedites your entry back in the united states and we we're coming back from a uh well i was back up a little bit this was a trip with with pat and dane godowskis <laughs> Um, Grant Ellis, the photo editor at Surfer Magazine, Kimball Taylor, a writer, a good friend of mine, and we were doing a story on this project. And this is right when I started, I kind of orchestrated this thing, and we end up with a pack of nine people going down to this very remote area. Um, Everybody likes a (laughs) job.
1: I know, and this is, uh, it's 10 years ago,
0: 27 years old. Yeah. and so we drive 13 hours down, we, we set up camp, we get there at night. That night, we're sitting around the campfire and the wind shifts during our campfire conversation. Like literally the yeah. wind shifts and it goes from your Northwest and right. Northern Baja to like a East kind of hot Santa Ana-ish type of wind. Didn't think much of it and um Within an hour after getting into our tents, every tent in our camp was tent tacoed. Yeah. Folded up, spikes ripped out of the ground, the <laughs> tent poles breaking in half, surfboards blowing away, the most sleepless night ever yeah. had in our entire lives. <laughs> Kinda I couldn't say woke up in the morning, but finally like unzipped yeah. out of our tent tacos and the wind's blowing harder than I ever seen it blow in my life. I've been in two hurricanes and it was beyond wow. To the point we couldn't even communicate with each other because right. it was so couldn't loud. Yeah. It was like a 747 it was right. right next to us. Packed up, loaded the car, drove 13 hours home. <laughs> There was nothing we were going to, what are we going to do? We actually had about a 10-minute surf session that uh-huh. evening, right, when we got down there.
1: What was the intention of the trip originally?
0: Just to Kimball's writing, a, and the article went out. It was a great article uh-huh. just highlighting the work that's being done and okay. kind of the, the need for conserving these areas. Sure. And, Bracer you know, surfers we're very cognizant yeah. of of highlighting these places, sure. especially that yeah, are home to great waves. Yeah. Um, we try not to, you know... That oh, I see what too you're, saying. Much? you're trying to be more mindful of very of mindful actually. of the surfing sure, aspect of absolutely. it. That's not why we're doing it. We're not protecting surf spots. We're no. protecting natural coastal yeah. ecosystems. But so that's the message. That, uh, no, that's, that's <laughs> definitely, <laughs> there that's, happens to be some, it's a byproduct yeah. for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> but
1: hey, you know, that's, it's no coincidence either. You know? Yeah. If you don't fuck with the land, it tends to produce good surf. Yeah. Really. And,
0: and I, and I'll, I'll, get to that in a second. And just to wrap right. up the
1: story. Yeah. We
0: get to, so it's nighttime, I, we haven't slept and we get into Tijuana and I don't know where the sentry line is at all. And so I, I see a cop and I pull over and I'm like, hey, do you know where the sentry line is? Boom, $60 fine for parking and the road and this and that. And I never could find the sentry line that night. I ended up waiting in a two and a half hour borderline and... Um, that was the only time I've been bribed in, really? in Mexico. Was that was that one trip? Wait, literally, yeah, the only time. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, and and so I've been going down there since I was
1: 13 years old. Yeah, that's and, remarkable. Um, so I don't think that's. Uh, I think you're in the lower percentile of people who have could only be been, had to do that. And I'm re- very aware of where I'm going, True. when I'm
0: driving. Yep. Um, I'll surf like Rosarito Pier sometimes and Uh some spots in northern Baja and San Miguel, obviously. But, you know, I don't hang out in certain areas for very long. We never draw attention to ourselves. We try to avoid driving at night always um, just for pure safety in those really remote areas. But in all that time, you know, we really had very little contact with anything that you would attribute to the violence that was going on. Actually, it was almost quite the contrary. People were very welcome, right, to have visitors. Yeah, and it was well. The
1: need was much greater for that little little burst of the, you know totally. local economy, or
0: and it was it was really surfing, and the growth of the wine region in the Vida Guadalupe, inland of Ensenada, that kind of kept tourism alive right. during that time. Right, and we're looking at like. 2008 to 2013 mm-hmm. was really that period. Right. Um, until things got a little bit better. Right. And now it's, you know, booming down there. Wow. Surfing. What an
1: amazing um, opportunity though, just the way that the, the timing of all that came together. Like you said, that it happened to coincide with these events that obviously no one could have predicted and or had anything to do with in terms of influencing that, but really worked in your guys' favor. I mean, you clear out all the people that, you know, were creating blockage for what you would have been dealing with had they not, you know, or had they stayed, rather. Yeah. That's quite a fortunate turn of events for you guys. Yeah. To, well, I shouldn't say fortunate. Well, yeah. Was, there's a lot of sure. downside, but but that's certainly a silver lining, I think. If yeah, anything.
0: definitely. It gave us yeah. a great opportunity. And, you know, it, um, it a lot of it happened all at once. And from a surfing perspective, I mean, that was five years of surfing even San Miguel with less than a Almost handful of people out. Yeah. And I remember was, that. Yeah. It was yeah, crazy.
1: Wild. Yeah.
0: And it was, it was almost like one day that I remember in particular that we were heading down. It was kind of those classic like Northern Baja gray days uh-huh. and, and the waves were firing and there was no one out from the border to San Miguel. And it was really when all those stories started coming out, yeah. we're like, wow, this is the new reality. That right. same day was the outbreak of the swine flu Gosh. epidemic, the yeah, H1N1. Right. Yeah. And Mexico was kind of at the epicenter of that. Right. So on the trip back, all the toll attendants had masks on and were like, what's going on? And they're like, oh, the swine flu. We're like, whoa. And it was almost like from that day forward, it was dead. Yeah. There was nobody going down. The lineups were empty. And- I forgot that also coincided. That was definitely a compounding
1: factor. I remember there was a d- definitely a turning point. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, I'd say we're on the other end of it. Unfortunately, there's all sorts of chaos going on down there right now with the Honduran, yep. the, the migrants and Tijuana being um, not thrilled with the fact that one, all this attention is being drawn to their city, that there's a couple thousand people seeking asylum in the U.S. They're going to be in Tijuana maybe mm-hmm. for the rest of their lives. Right. Um, is what happens with a lot of yeah, migrants that are like going you're through there. And so, you know, it's, there's a very negative light
1: shed right now. Yeah, it's intense. Very intense. I just was down the other week right after I got back from Ireland and um, it was palpable. Like there was a different kind of uh, feeling in the air a bit, you know, so to speak. And I don't normally notice that when I'm down there, but it was kind of like there was an intensity that was a little bit, you know, ratcheted up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just where it's positioned on a map even, too. Oh, yeah. You know, that,
0: that country experiences a lot. There's a lot of resources, a lot of natural resources. Kind of a funnel on way. I mean, right. It's, and it's a lot of people around the world want a part of it. A lot right. of the investors in in some of the projects we've seen down in Cabo Pulmo and Southern Baja, California and other areas, there's been Chinese investors. Mm. There's been spanish investors
1: in these projects it's rich Um, land it may look desolate but right from a tourism perspective resources to be mm -hmm, yeah mm -hmm. taken that's for sure well that's really cool i think um that kind of i guess can segue us into the second example that we were talking about before as far as how these things come together um and i think more specifically with the with the save trestles fight you know what i saw that was it was a good example of the way things can kind of come together in terms of public and private interest groups, you know, and I was hoping that maybe you could essentially speak to the importance of, you know, working with local communities, cultures, governments, private institutions to achieve achieve sustainable change, you know? Yeah. And like you said, I know it's an active ongoing thing, but it just seems like it would be much more difficult to achieve anything that's long standing, even if it requires maintenance, without bringing all those different facets together. Yeah,
0: and that's the role of, that's what an NGO can do, a nonprofit. profit um, can kind of be that intersector between government, between the public, between research, between resource managers, is and, and a nonprofit can can function very flexibly. We can raise money, we can have our own protocols that can help work with government, can help influence government, and Trestles is a really good example of that. Right. Without Surfrider um in that fight, I don't I think we probably would have lost
1: yeah but then being so pivotal so just for those who don't know what's the gist of that situation the because gist yeah the gist of privy, it
0: was uh the transportation corridor agency which is in orange county which has built toll roads already there um wanted to extend a toll road from kind of eastern orange county to the coast and connect with the, the i-5 which is our major north south freeway here in, in california um right at trestle's Uh, right within the San Onofre State Park, within the San Mateo watershed, and just upstream from upper trestles and and, and lower trestles, which is just to the south of it, and and both very influenced by the natural functions of the San Mateo watershed. And this was going to go over a very important indigenous cultural site. Uh, There's a, a campground there that people from, you know, all walks of life
1: can go enjoy and, and camp and, and, and these are kind of the layers that you were talking about in terms of the importance or significance of things and that maybe being beneficial in the end that it was so intersecting. Yes. Yeah. Cause I haven't even mentioned the surf part yet right. of it, right? It's right. also
0: an iconic world right. famous surf surf spot that, yeah. Brings in lots of money. Oh, massive There's been economic studies. Yeah. Chad Nelson, CEO at Surfrider, um, a lot of his PhD work was doing that kind of surf economic studies on the value of trestles, which is right. tremendous. Yeah. And cannot be argued at Probably all. One
1: of the largest. Yeah.
0: Right. But kind of more importantly than the surfing aspect is what what this project would have done to a state park and Mm. what's the precedent right so it's not just that we can't look at like just this san mateo watershed experience on how that gets what's what's the impact of this going to be if we allow the coastal commission which ultimately um kind of made that first big decision about it um and vetoed this Mm. project if they had allowed it then that would change every state park in the state of california what can and cannot happen in there and so it was, yeah, multi-sectoral um, approach between tribes and bird lovers and outdoor enthusiasts and, and smart planners of, of urban areas. Mm-hmm. And surfing just being a component of that was really exciting to see is that surfing, the idea of surfing kind of galvanized this, this huge broad audience to be at that 2008 meeting. In Del Mar, where the Coastal Commission yep. um, vetoed those plans to do so, and the fight went on through 2016, even.
1: Um, yeah. And they're still fighting today. Right. Oh, Yeah. To well, as you said, it's it's rarely saved, if ever. Yeah. Truly. Right. I, to me, you know, reflecting on it just as just a surfer, that that's to your last point about how the surfers were part of the galvanizing component, like. That's why it's such a pride point in my mind as a surfer to be associated, you know, I, I I showed up to a few of the events, and and it's not that I feel personally, you know, responsible, but it's that I'm proud to be part of a community of surfers that finally was also a catalyst as well as a galvanizing component because it's not usually the case. I mean, it's very common that there's activism within the surfing community, but rare that it gets condensed or, um, you know, coordinates to a point at which, you actually have a real component that can galvanize a broader community on land. You know, it's usually kind of the opposite, like surfers are we're busy surfing, you yeah. know, like whatever.
0: Yeah. And so. that was it was very place based. Yeah. So it gave us a tangible Product of our hard work and right. of all the volunteer hours that went into it. You can look at it You can pick up the sand that wouldn't have flowed mm. out of the out of the San Mateo sure. Creek It was tangible for a lot and, of people and ride those waves right. um, whereas you know the other battles that we are all part of now with plastic mm. pollution and, and 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 some of these other you know very mainstream fights right now in the environmental world it's it's more kind of bigger
1: picture kind of sure. out there in the ether a little bit. Yeah, it's just far enough away to right. not be taken seriously or, immi- or uh, <clears throat> imminently. Yeah. But we
0: should applaud ourselves for the for the efforts that we did with, with banning you know uh, plastic straws, having plastic straws upon mm-hmm. request in California, and doing municipal bans of plastic bags across the state. Like, yeah. No, there's a lot we don't we give celebrated. ourselves enough credit yeah. for that. I don't think. I agree. And
1: unfortunately
0: with the legislative world, it just moves on so fast. The next one totally. that we f- kind of forget, like,
1: I couldn't agree more. I feel like that happens all the time for better or worse with positive and negative news stories is just, uh, you know, w- whether it's, 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 it's more devastating. I think when it's a, a real tragedy that just gets kind of swept under the rug, but it's also equally tragic to not even notice or, or even be able to recall faintly within a short period of time, you know? what a real win was for the people, for communities, for the environment. Because obviously the most undercovered news story in the world is the positive stuff. So Mm -hmm. it's like, why can't we just have that for Mm -hmm. a little bit? And there's more wins than losses right now. Right. I
0: mean, the movement here, especially in California is tremendous and and we're we're winning. Um, We got a lot of work to do, but we're on the right track.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Well, that kind of, um, I mean, your point about how that was such a tangible experience for people, and it was, you know, it was tactile almost, you know, to your point about holding the sand and knowing what where that sand would have been without them. Um, kind of segues well into this other big topic that you and I had spoken about, which is um, climate change. But through the through the metaphor kind of of you know, spaceship Earth, you know, are you a passenger, or are you a crew member, you know, are you an ostrich or a worm, you know, and um, I just think that. To me, one thing I'm always thinking about kind of mulling over is like the state of modern pessimism, basically, you know, like apathy versus activism and all that stuff. So I don't know, maybe you can talk about kind of you had mentioned shifting the role of public responsibility and that kind of being a nice place to start, I feel like. So maybe we can talk about a this perception, you know, um, disparity of long term stuff that's hard to see tangibly and hard to hold in your hand. So that's difficult to take into serious consideration, I think, just as a part of our evolution, really. We're not really wired to think that far ahead about things. But also, you know, how can we start breaking off components of this bigger issue and tackling them in a digestible way?
0: Yeah. That's <laughs> Sorry, I kind of loaded that <laughs> one up for you. Um, we'll just start with the, with the <laughs> Spaceship Earth
1: component, you know, yeah. to your point about long-term versus, you know... Uh, more tangible right. stuff in our immediate future that we can see and appreciate.
0: Yeah, I mean, just to start with that, it's it's humans in general right now. I don't even. It's not even that we're passengers on the spaceship Earth that is careening into the sun. <laughs> we're partying in the back of the plane, <laughs> and there's a couple. <laughs> A couple like Kiribati uh, and the Maldives <laughs> and low-lying island nations that are in coach just gripping on right. the handlebars. Right. Like, guys, can you get up here? Yeah. Um, pilots. We're on fire. In the back, yeah. too.
1: And underwater. And,
0: and yeah. it's, I mean, it that's, sure, it's it's an exaggeration. We're not
1: literally careening into the sun. But no, but I think that's important to point out because, you know, we have, this is getting a little grim about it, but like in terms of our perception of like the downfall of the world, or you know any kind of Armageddon or fallout, it's happening already. I mean, these things are already actively happening. Some components of them in certain parts of the world, we just we're not living it yet here.
0: Right, and you we're know?
1: not living it like right this second.
0: But you but can't. But the process is yeah, and you yeah. can't. So I mean, with with climate change, and it's you know the argument we. First, we need to address climate change denialism. Right. And we need to get rid of that. Absolutely. And we need people to more understand and inform people more of the realities of this. And it might take a reframing of the issue. Let's call it fossil fuel climate disruption. Okay. (laughs) Because the argument, oh, the climate's always changing. Right. Sure. It's always it's always changing. Yes. It's changing over-that's true. It's
1: kind of a euphemism almost. Right.
0: But it's changing over thousands of years. What we're seeing is changes in decades. Yes. And that has never, (laughs) that has not happened before. Right. So sure there's ice ages and then there weren't ice ages and then it was warm and then there was no life on Earth, and then there was all these extinctions. And yeah. now we're in the sixth, quote-unquote, sixth extinction. Right. There's been a lot more than six extinctions. Right. There's been micro... That's just the ones that we can Yeah, microbial about, extinctions literally. that we don't even know. But we're in the anthropogenic extinction, the, the Hallocene extinction of, of this epoch of humans on Earth. And there's dios to the scale where there's greater extinction than there is speciation. So these you know populations of animals across the world are are, are dying and not being repopulated. Yeah. Biodiversity
1: is plummeting. Yeah. Right, and
0: it's it's we'll try not to be too pessimistic sure. here. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll round it off with yeah. Some, we'll find some, 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 some positivity at the end of this, end. but
1: well, we really need to
0: address that. And
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so, we had kind of even joked about it in comparing it to flat earthers, you know, and how um, I well, I'm just going to say it straight up. I hope no one who's listening is one, but it's frankly a fucking joke. If someone says that, like, and it's just, it's, you know, not even, uh, it, it's unreal to anyone that considers that for a moment. And yet, why is there such a difference in the perception of something like climate change? You know, I mean, it's so blatant. And why is it so far fetched is what I don't understand. Right. Why is if it so far
0: out? You believe, so most people believe in whether they like to believe it or not, they believe in science. Okay. You can ask a climate change denialist, do you want a cure for cancer? Right, in this future. Do you want more fuel efficiency for vehicles or a, a more streamlined vehicle? Do you want planes to fly? It's all science, that's all science. And the science behind climate change is very proving. And I wish we learned, I wish, I wish we knew the indicators to look for decades ago and we would have called things, we would have approached it differently and it wouldn't be so much alarmism. Um, Al Gore wouldn't be this kind of like cartoonish character right. in this play of, right. of, this of climate change yeah. or
1: climate disruption caused but, by humans. But then again, it's really just kind of human nature that, that suppresses it, isn't it? I mean, like whether it's, it's a discomfort. It's, it, it's a psychology, it's a, like it's a scarcity psychology thing that we're not comfortable with. If
0: it's what, what addressing climate change means is, is more regulation. It really right. does. Right. As much as we'd like to believe that the markets and the, public will will solve this Mm. there's going to have to be a lot of innovation to get there to make these strategies to mitigate and adapt to climate change affordable for the massive parts of the world that can't afford the little things that are going to make a difference here or they don't even have water to drink exactly (laughs) exactly and i mean we can really compound these issues with plastic pollution and and all this other stuff too and yeah it's 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 a shanty town in manila like they're you know, they don't have water, potable water running out of faucets. Right. They might not even have faucets that have water. So if they're drinking water, it's bottled water. Right. Okay. On the scale of millions of people, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's, there's, there's a lot of greater factors at play. But yeah. we need to take a step back. We need to really look at the facts. We need to trust the science, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is part of the United Nations, through the paris agreement the paris agreement's the largest global consensus of anything the earth has ever seen that there's more countries buying in to this and hoping to address it not our own maybe the people hope to but our leadership does not um and so it's incredible it's incredible it's on a global scale we're not just talking developed countries we're talking across the board right and different countries set their targets and some of these Low-lying island nations are setting higher targets. We need to reduce our emissions by this much right. because they're going underwater, right. and they see it. And they're looking at us, who's partying in the back of the plane. Right. Can you guys come up and and be part of this table yeah. um, and part of this discussion and understand that this is real? But we just craft a cold one, so yeah. Thank there goodness. It soon. <laughs> so it's if so that we set this two-degree two degrees celsius target by 2030 yeah the the paris agreement this the recent research from the ipcc that's the intergovernmental panel on climate change says two degrees is too much 1.5 degrees is really where we need to go and just since pre-industrial times we've already warmed the atmosphere a degree so we got a half a degree buffer to get to that point now in order to achieve that we need to decarbonize the global economy, we need to stop using fossil fuels, and we actually need to scrub the atmosphere that the carbon's already out there. I don't think we're gonna get to that. I don't think yeah. we're gonna get there. I don't but the difference between two degrees, which is a, let's shoot for that, yeah. and 2.7 <laughs> yeah, degrees.
1: Yeah, yeah
0: 2.7 yeah. degrees means coral reefs are gone yeah. around the world. That's half a billion people that rely on coral reefs for fisheries, that live in communities that are buffered by, on island nations that have coral reefs around them that buffer hurricanes and storm surge, Um, the massive tourism industries that exist, like all that's gone. Mm. Summer ice in the Arctic, gone. Polar bears, gone. Um, That's a big difference. That's just .7, that's from 2 to 2.7 degrees Celsius. All this stuff is real. We need to approach it differently. We need to frame it differently. We don't need, we shouldn't be afraid of it. We just need to deal with it.
1: Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. the only reason I was laughing, because I'm just like, oh my god. Even when I hear you right now, and I know these things, but to hear you say it so clearly, it, uh, we, uh, have, we, so. we
0: have the capacity to do it yes we,
1: we really do yes we
0: do And, <laughs> and
1: <laughs> we're gonna be okay
0: I think humans in this technological world that we live in and we have our smartphones and we think oh we're so disengaged from the natural world right like as a think of humans as an organism that we're so disengaged we can't get there we can't right. we can't reintegrate ourselves with the natural yeah. world which just isn't true humans have been around for 300 something thousand years right We converged or diverged our way out of Africa 30 to 100,000 years ago. We only set up sedentary lifestyle 10,000 years ago.
1: And even recently,
0: we lived very close, intertwined to the world. It hasn't been in the past 10 Um, years that we've been stuck stuck on our phones. So it's it's in our system, the natural world and the understanding and the ability to uh, experience joy and wonder about it is very special to humans. Beavers don't care or seek to wonder why their river's drying up, right? They just move and find fish somewhere else. Yeah. We do. We have the capacity to be like, okay, our river's drying up. Why? And we can do something about yeah, it. Right.
1: And that's the real That's the real tool we have is that consciousness that appreciates and is self-aware of those appreciations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's, I, that's, that's a great point. And um, it kind of it, it makes me think a lot about how I feel like one of the big pitfalls of the messaging and communication from mostly environmental groups i'm just thinking of but um, nonprofits in general when when tackling a difficult issue basically a difficult reality that is bringing things to someone's attention they don't want to deal with it it's unpleasant um, i think it's accentuated a little bit more in the environmental world because in my opinion to be frank scientists don't know how to talk to everyday people so to speak and they'll be the first to admit that right so i think that a lot of it gets lost in translation in terms of the emotional sentimental components and making it more relatable so i mean i guess what i'm getting at is like how do nonprofit groups environmental groups communicate messages in a way that is still empowering and activating and not leading people either further into an existing path of kind of disparity or or pessimism Mm -hmm. or surrender, mm-hmm. um, you know, if not creating that for them, you know, so yeah. How do we, how do we balance that message?
0: Yeah. And, and with scientists too, they're very wary of hyperbole. They're yeah. not going to go, you know, and make these kind of more grandiose statements about something if it's not deeply rooted in their science. And so it's a, it's a absolutely unbiased perspective, right? which can suck all the emotion out of it. Well, it is the art of communicating the science. Exactly. And that's really important. And that is a a role that NGOs can play. And what we've really shifted at Wild Coast, our storytelling, to be positive. Mm. And to have the components of a story. There's a great book by Randy Olson called Houston, We Have a Narrative, that's about that. He was a scientist turned Hollywood producer. Right. And he has the and, but, therefore approach. Mm. So... The coral reefs of Cabo Pulmo are some of the most beautiful in the world and they support a robust ecotourism community and the reefs have spillover benefits. So even though it's a marine protected area, you can't fish there, the, the fish aggregate around the Gulf of California and it's wonderful. But there are developers on the horizon that want to put golf courses and mega resorts immediately adjacent to the coral reef and that's going to cause sedimentation, that's going to destroy the coral reef and completely disrupt the the way of living for the thousands of people that live there. Therefore, Wild Coast is launching a global media campaign to draw attention to the significance of this reef, to hopefully influence the investors in these programs that their money can be best spent elsewhere, Mm. and this project is actually going to destroy the natural beauty that they're seeking to exploit. Wow. And the and, but it, it. therefore. It's, it's that's a simple a great structuring of it. Uh, and, and so it starts with a positive story, and then you right. get into what's the threat, and then what's the tangible thing that's going to be done. Yeah. It's that's almost like a that's the part sandwich. that's really important. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I see that a lot that nonprofits will fail, and that third component of it yeah. is therefore, yeah, this is what we're doing. You need to put acres, how many acres are conserved, by yeah. what tools, how many miles of beach. Yeah. And be very clear about that. If we don't do that and we just do the, the, the but, which is what we do. Right. Um, often it's just the, but it's just the bad, then people turn off immediately because that leads people to think there's very
1: little you can do. So no, I really love that idea. It's a great, I'm definitely, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, but you know, just adding the storytelling component, I mean, that, I'm feeling redundant now because it tends to come up inevitably in so many different episodes but that's such a powerful medium of communication and to not be calling upon those elements of it is really missing something Mm -hmm. I think you know because it's very um, it's an easy catalyst for relating and it's very important
0: to have the local story too who's living it right who sees it every day so when we have uh, when we do our mangrove conservation work in in Mexico um, it's You know we're talking with people that live in those communities magdalena bay for example that have been fishing that for their entire lives they've seen the importance of it now they understand the value of protecting that from a fisheries perspective also the, the the fact that mangroves buffer coastlines against same with coral reefs against hurricanes and storm surges and all that not to go too much on the mangrove tangent but recent science shows that mangroves especially the desert mangroves of baja sequester more atmospheric carbon than any other plant species on the planet. Whoa. Vast carbon sinks in these areas. Wow. And land use changes on a global scale is accounts for about twenty-five percent of global carbon emissions. So if we can stop that, if we can stop if we can prevent land use changes in places like mangroves, right. seagrass beds yeah. as well. They're they so like reverse oasis. These are elements. they're they're called they're called blue carbon ecosystems. And those are mangrove forests, seagrass beds and salt marshes. We have seagrass beds and salt marshes here in San Diego County. One thing I'm really interested in um, through my work at Wild Coast is exploring the the carbon sequestration value and storage of the salt marshes and seagrasses in our wetlands in San Diego Bay and you can very easily quantify that. And we've done the research in Mexico that shows we have to protect these places wow. and that'll actually allow Mexico to meet its its climate nationally determined climate change targets sure. to so the Paris agreement through that. If we yeah. protect these areas which otherwise would become shrimp farms and we'll dig them out, we release all that carbon in the atmosphere and never again will they sequester carbon that actually mm. is just as much as as taking measures wow. to decarbonize the economy there. So Um, back to the, you know, there's local people in those communities that we're working with on that
1: perspective now. Well, and and through that engaging citizen science, which probably makes them feel, you know, a little bit more, not only accountable, but like proud in a way, you know, gives them ownership of of fighting for a cause that they can Mm -hmm. defend and stand behind organically. Yeah. I mean, you were, that was kind of tying into what you had brought up about shifting public accountability, you know, in terms of the way we see that um, that outlook, you know, and just really taking that accountability. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's just, it seems like it's kind of compounded in a way the messaging or I'm, I'm, I'm definitely stereotyping, but I feel like historically it's never been very well addressed, the communication component. And it seems like the, the dip, you know, the psychology of dealing with a difficult issue that you would rather not deal with, you know, it's nice to Nicer day if I don't think about that sort of thing um, compounds with the fact that a lot of times, whether it's just out of sheer frustration or judgment or both, that by the time the message does come out, it's kind of latent with a tone of judgment or highbrow air to it. And um, I think that that's a really common, it is a stereotype, but I think that's a common objection from. You know a lot of people who are not as involved or or wouldn't necessarily consider themselves to be voting on policy that favors these values Mm -hmm. is that they feel in a way ostracized by that tone and by that judgment you know and I guess what I'm getting is like how do we how do we cross that bridge of of you know even ourselves feeling guilty at times for something that we could do better or that we did and we're regretting or whatever and like get past the whole like feeling you know negative self-talk and and instead of surrendering and and being apathetic about it say okay but change you know like still being galvanized yeah yeah
0: yeah and it's it's the with the stories that you know the grandiose statements the blanketed statements that you know the the sensationalism on facebook with wildfires and and it's it's all over the place and um we can say oh it's because of climate change sure maybe right um it's we we had fires before anthropogenic climate change um, maybe not to the extent that we have now. That's one thing out of these IPCC the IPCC study. IPCC study <laughs> is that um, is that some places are going to get wet. Places are going to get wetter. Dry places are going to get drier. One point five degrees Celsius doesn't mean everywhere is going to get warmer by one point five degrees right. Celsius. It means no. in the Arctic it's, it's going to be six degrees, and in other places it's going to be this degrees. Right. I guess. But Hence my, the revision of the global warming right nomenclature. Right. Yeah. Right. But my I guess my point is that. We need, a plan for the, we need to understand and plan for those big picture, kind of almost more the godly occurrence of climate change mm-hmm. that's affecting the entire planet, mm-hmm. but also plan for all the stuff in between. There's climate and there's weather. We need to plan for the weather. We need to better manage hillsides and right. brush areas and, and not build communities into the natural urban interface as we have yeah. done. Um, that's just common sense. But in the face of climate change, it makes it that
1: much more urgent that we need to work on this stuff. Somehow a little more tangible than just... I I mean, I think that's... I don't know. Certainly anything I've heard talks on dealing with the the issue of why we're not taking this more seriously, it always comes down to the fact that it's just... It's just hard for us to grasp. It's just far enough away, or it's just... It's not even that it's far enough away. It could be that component, but that coupled with the scale Mm -hmm. of what it is that you just feel so, it's so overwhelming, you know? So like, you know, finding an entry point to even begin the path of involving yourself and educating yourself and hopefully taking action. And the it's successes like, are so long-term,
0: right? It's that, you're not gonna win next yeah, year. Yeah. I mean, it's its the opposite of our land conservation project more seed in planting. Baja. It's yeah. 10 years ago, we started with nothing, now we have 55,000 acres of land right. conserved. With climate change, it's ongoing. Right. So we can't think of it as, an environmental campaign or a conservation campaign. It's, like, really just a fact of being responsible humans now. It's a new now. practice when you to It's it. a new
1: practice, yeah. absolutely. No, that's a really good point because we are, you know, inherently looking for that easy, well, a certain solution and hopefully sooner rather than later, you know? Right. You know, and it's easy gonna, answer. Yeah, easy out, you know?
0: and the successes are going to be piecemeal and they're going to come slowly okay. and there will be... Um, You know, so it's the, you know, there was natural disasters before anthropogenic climate change too, but there's been these human-caused disasters for a long time. And the the Dust Bowl, for example, in the 30s was caused by humans of taking the largest grassland intact ecosystem on the planet from central Canada all the way down to Texas and changing it from its natural function to ranching was actually what kind of worked there because right. it maintained this grassland to agriculture and very unsustainable agriculture. And that caused, cost, that cost, wasn't until the 50s or 60s that some of those areas were wow, recovered. But part of FDR's new deal to help address that were conservation measures. So it was actually, you know, and there was, was, was a failure and a success. Yeah. And so we looked at, you know, the people that, there's a book called The Worst Hard Time. If you ever like, I love reading books of like historical nonfiction uh-huh. with like some element of human misery in it because when you're in a tough situation, it's you think back almost. on that and yeah. you're like, okay, at least I'm not Ernest Shackleton in the Arctic with my ship being crushed. I think we could use more cathartic outlets. It's, I think it's important to see that, you know, there's there's been, you know, these stories and there's been yes. massive success yeah. and yeah, this book, The Worst Hard Time, talks about the settlers in, in Colorado, Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Kansas, in that Dust Bowl area, pre-Dust Bowl, that stayed mm-hmm. once the Dust Bowl hit. I mean, their houses were literally being buried in sand dunes. Every, the life was so bad that it was apocalyptic, right? literally apocalyptic. Yeah. And now... You know, not now, but there was recovery from that, and and now there's it's it's back. You know, it's you know there's no shortage of problems in the Midwest, but um, there's a success story there that at its worst point would have seemed like the world was ending. It was for those people,
1: and and people have always. I mean, I think that's another kind of common, um, somewhat of a crutch that people who are arguing in defense of their objections to climate change science or whatever it is that like, well, people always say it's the worst, you know, whatever my grandfather or my grandmother went through this and my great great went through that. And it's, you know, they're always saying it's, you know what I mean? Like that whole argument of like, it's purely anecdotal. It's, you know, it's hyperbole, it's whatever. And that's such a slippery slope at the same time, you know, like, like, in other words, so important to know and have that perspective that things have been really bad before and we recovered. Things are really bad now so likely we will recover but let's not use that as an excuse to just assume things will recover right especially at
0: the scale of the the threats that we're dealing with now right and for someone that has two kids like i want my kids to be able to go snorkel a coral reef and go or go surf over one (laughs) breathe the air exactly (laughs) yeah Um, Yeah, let's just start
1: with (laughs) right normal human things right Yeah. yeah Well, what do you think, um, I'm just thinking in relation to all the messaging and and kind of shifting the consciousness of our culture and um, what what role do you see social media either having played thus far for better or worse in relation to environmental policy um, or even just awareness uh, and how do you see it as a possible utility because it's just one of these things that has really shaken up um, so much of the, you know, the cultural core of, of the whole world, Mm -hmm. but the social interaction, the dynamic in society in terms of how we um, attribute values to certain groups and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think a classic example, a really good example is, you know, the whole fight for against plastic pollution, Mm. single-use plastics, Um, that there wouldn't be this awareness. Because I think what kind of galvanized that movement, and especially in the surf world, and we can look at the World Surf League, for example... Um, and it was really, it's this year, they, you know, these guys have been going, and women have been going to Indonesia and surfing, and they've seen the plastic pollution problem there explode. Right. Yeah. And now that Absolutely. social media has kind of, it's really disseminated that message and brought a lot of imagery that's mm-hmm. very powerful on the issue. And it's gotten them, these surfers, part of the World Surf League, more aware of it. And at the, this year's event in Bali, it was the big message was, I can't believe this issue and mm. I can't believe how bad it's gotten. Fortunately, that galvanized the World Surf League to help play an active role in, in plastic pollution policies here in California. They were already going and the WSL has joined on to that effort and through their social media campaign, they can have a broader influence to get more people part of that effort. Which has resulted in some major successes, which we talked about earlier with plastic bag bands, polystyrene bands, statewide straw band, which is just common sense. Mm -hmm. Everyone has seen that video of the sea turtle with the plastic straw through its nose. I wonder,
1: without that, would we, you know... No, that's a great point. I think the. the, it's funny because I wasn't even necessarily thinking... Specifically, the visual component. I was just thinking the nature of the networking and the way that you interact in terms of how accessible and widespread it is. That but, too is very important. Well, yeah, but I mean, I would say equally, if not more so, is the visual component because it made me think of the way that, you know, for example, that um, wartime journalism affected what happened in Vietnam. You know, and then it had it galvanized this whole population of people because they, in a more visceral way or a more empathetic way, at least, experienced that reality, that pain, that suffering and it was tangible, you know, mm-hmm. it, was, it was visible. And, of course, they promptly corrected, you know, press policies since then in terms of wartime coverage. We don't ever see that anymore because mm-hmm. we all know what that will do to the war. It will end it, and mm-hmm. there's too many interests involved to in end it now. So I guess what I mean is that in relation to environmental policy seems very appropriate, you know, in mm-hmm. terms of the way showing this sea turtle, you know, showing babies, like, you have this universal human response that can be called upon to use as a tool to actually wake people up. Yeah. And it's a little bit
0: contradictory to what I said
1: earlier is we need to
0: tell positive stories, but right. here this horrific image of a yeah. sea turtle with a straw
1: in its nose that, you well, know, well, we can celebrate the positive, tell a true story and finish with an inspiring note. Right? Yeah. Right. And, and maybe
0: sometimes we need, those okay, with with SeaWorld, and for full disclosure, SeaWorld is is, is a supporter of our work, and it was public wow. outcry to whale pra- you know cap- yeah. whales in captivity on a global level yeah. that has led them to kind of to end those practices. Right, um, the, I you know not to get too much on the SeaWorld topic, but. No, it's a really interesting one. From from like an animal recovery, there's no one like it for rescuing injured wildlife. There was a Guadalupe fur seal there earlier this year. Um, without them, a lot of wildlife would die. Um, and then there's the argument, and I could get you know beat up for this, but you know they do inspire people about these animals that very few of us see in the wild, right? I mean, very few no, of us I, are going to see think, polar bears I think it's in the wild. really
1: important that you point that out because almost every issue is way more complex than the initial emotional reaction that you hear about or that you feel even from what's presented to you. And it's not, rarely is everything all bad, right. with a, especially with an organization. So, no, yeah. sorry to interrupt, but no, I, just, no. I think it's, that's very appropriate. Yeah, and there's there's the inspirational
0: value on it. But back to, yeah, the social media, the imagery is very important. The messaging, like you said, is very important, especially now in the digital age that if there's legislation that needs public comment on that can be submitted digitally. Right. And those messages can be shared digitally. Whereas in the past, and we still do it today, sure. is letter writing campaigns and someone out in front of Vons with the clipboard yeah. and getting signatures yeah, right. and all yeah. that's super important. Social media can allow us to reach a super broad and diverse and international audience on a lot of these themes too. And it's you know that's I think that's the part we need to note is that this California Plastics campaign is part of a gl- larger Kind of global movement um, that was really, I think, enabled by social right. media and the ability to share these images and these stories yeah. um, that are very significant.
1: No, it's a good point. It's a global medium, and that it, you know, there aren't a board, I mean, there are borders, so to speak, that you know through algorithms and otherwise. But you don't have the same somewhat arbitrary geographic borders in relation to message sharing. You know, you don't have to go through government approval per se. Yeah. You know? And that can work for positive and that can work for negative. Absolutely. We're seeing, you know, with oh, Facebook and otherwise. And in the
0: same stream of messages you yeah, get. Yeah. You know, but at least
1: on this side, you know, if we are looking at the positive side of it, it is accessibility. Right. You know, it's what the internet should be. You like, know, it's unadulterated in that way. God forbid you look at comments
0: on anything. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that's what we need to I stop looking at clear, comments. Man, just stop clear. doing it. No, you'll 100%. Spend hours yeah. reading people's totally biased. <sighs> Unscientifically based opinions on things like they're fact, and yeah. it's really sad.
1: That is definitely the inverse. Is everyone has a platform and a strong conviction, and a fight to pick, but without necessarily, if at all, being properly educated on the topic.
0: I tell people to call like when there's issues, particularly with California marine protected areas, which for some reason is still controversial. We have this network of 124 MPAs, over half a million acres of offshore ecosystems are protected. Some people's access to these areas for the reasons that they want to access them have been limited. But MPAs work, Marine Protected Areas work. Cabo Pulmo, which we talked about, was established community-driven, Marine Protected Area in 1995. Within 10 years, fishery biomass increased over 460%. Now it's one of the world's leading ecotourism sites for diving and and snorkeling and et cetera. People come from all over the world. And, um, And what's the
1: argument? against it
0: well it's you know some people can't fish where they wanted to fish um but we you know and the messages i get through social media about that and our role on on the mpa front is really helping to improve the management of these places we helped in the development process they were established in 2012 they're managed by the california department of fish and wildlife which has limited resources and capacity to to manage effectively on an ongoing basis this broad network, they're getting more resources and they're very, you know, the wildlife officers that are in the field are, are, are heroes. Um, right. they're dealing with, you know, everybody that they approach either has a gun or a knife, basically. It's one of the most dangerous enforcement only opportunity jobs yeah. that there is in California. I'm not surprised by that at all. Um, and so we're working with them, with prosecutors, with state legislators, with researchers, with tribes to, get that word out that these places exist, help shape policies that make them make more sense. Right. So I get these messages through social media and it, i call me. Yeah. Here's my phone Let's number. Talk. I've done that a hundred times. Yeah. Call me. No. Let's. This is, there are Anyone Anyone ever picked up Never. Well, one, one, friends that right. are a little bit distant. But not a stranger. Not strangers. Which is
1: really the important. Or even acquaintances that, who I know well. Sure. But the real work comes in when you have to have conversation right with someone that you don't know and you disagree with and if you're so upset and to be okay with that let's to work on be something
0: civil, yeah to talk right to hear each other it's like they're adaptive management the problem? but that goes back to okay these areas are closed for fishing which they're not out here Swamis eight thousand acres marine protected area right. you can spear fish yeah. you can hook and line from shore for whatever you want you just can't commercial fish right. in this area um, and we need a set we need these measures. We have yeah. to do this stuff. Yeah. Um, MPAs, they they work. And and but they're adaptively managed, just like a lot of this stuff, but we were so quick to just oh the med the you know, yeah. top down governmental approach, yeah, new, yeah. new regulation, walk away, I can't do anything. Well, that's think, not the I way I think
1: we well, we I'm speaking, I guess, for a lot of people, but um, it seems like the public sentiment is becoming a little bit more privy to, um, to these kind of, whether they're nefarious or unintended consequences of social media in terms of you know focusing on the wrong things and the things that are being said being unqualified or uneducated or, 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 or fake news, flat out. Um, so I think that people are at least becoming a little more aware of that. Um, it would just be nice to see everybody, I don't know, I guess appreciate the visual component in some of the messaging. Like, and then think to themselves first and then maybe go have a conversation with somebody about it, you know, like next time you have a beer with someone, just, Hey, how do you feel about turtles and, you know, eating plastic, you yeah, know, like, absolutely. it's pretty easy just to open a general conversation about these things and just feel out like, okay, what is it you feel? Why do you feel that way? You know, what do you need in this story or does it even affect you obviously, but yeah. Our yeah. conversations, the human
0: storytelling, we've been telling stories ever yeah and and we still do we just do it differently and it's not as but the humanity gets lost
1: exactly yeah. um yeah. so well it's you know it's just a good reminder that like you said i mean you're, you're out here saying hey here's my number call me like i think that's the biggest or most appropriate and respectful thing that someone can do, you know, in that medium. It's just hey, yeah. okay, let's talk. You and know, we, and I'm we right need here. to do like, more of that with yeah. the, and, and not, not a, even in a confrontational way, just hey, totally. If you have questions, I'm happy to talk. And you I know. have had, you know, some or people Or I want to know what you think, or Yeah, what are your what concerns? you feel. Yeah,
0: I want to hear you out. Right. If we can be a link, if an NGO can be a link to the legislators and you can call them directly too. Right. That's it's democracy and it's yeah. amazing how much yeah. access we have here. Right um but you have to exercise that and it I, takes discipline it does yeah and it's so easy with the bombardment of messaging and the opportunity to waste a lot of energy banging out comments on facebook that you're, you're tapped out yeah you don't have well, the energy the the irony anymore. is you're like
1: oh this is so much more convenient so much more easy and then you just fucking exhausted all this stress you know energy and you're just like Oh God, that felt so toxic. Yeah. You know? like, and there's, there's and more you didn't really accomplish anything. Right. Other than just raising your blood pressure a bit and yeah. feeling stressed totally. out. Totally. You know, and pissed off or,
0: and there's more public forums than ever before. Right. right. I mean, coastal commission. Yeah. Uh, state lands commission, local right. city councils, yeah. county board of supervisors, state assembly, state assembly. You can go to any of those and voice your opinion right. and galvanize a group of people and a movement that believe in whatever it is that you believe in, and try to get, make some change that
1: you want to see happen. Would be nice to see more often. Definitely. Yeah. So, just kind of wrapping things up here a little bit. Um, what do you see? And, and I don't know if it's appropriate to link this into what I was asking earlier about um, surf specific travel, just because selfishly I want to know, and I think a lot of my audience. Um, can relate to travel of of various lifestyle sports of one kind or another, but certainly there's a lot of surfers. Um, What do you see as kind of the current role of citizen science within conservation work and or what do you hope to see the role of citizen science become and maybe we could talk about through the lens of the surfing community?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it's the surfers are so close to the natural pulse, yet we are often not aware of the processes that are around us. So we have an opportunity to, when we're sitting there, which is mostly what we do, is sit there, is to think and to look (laughs) and to observe. And we like to think, oh, we've been surfing this spot forever, and I've seen how the reef changes, I see how the sand changes, but think of more of like a global, kind of a global level. And there's, I don't know of any other pastime where you're dependent on, on a resource that has resource being waves or weather that travels across the entire earth to make what's happening where you are. Yes. Swells coming from 3,000 miles away and storms being generated 1,000 miles away. And we're privy to all of that. We need to think about those things a little bit more, yeah, I think, I and, and spend that time to, to think and to study and to learn about global processes and how it because you're you see it. Most of the people most people don't see that stuff. Right. You know, we watch clouds change. Yeah. It and works. there's
1: an intuitive knowledge that emerges with, as a surfer, if, or, or if you spend time in the ocean in general or in nature even. Yeah.
0: But let's not let it stop there. Then go home and learn about it. Right. Right. Learn how our stuff. you know what I've been noticing? We get way more south swells in the summertime now. Now like summertime seems to be our right. big season. We get yeah. massive south swells and all these hurricanes learn about it, yeah. like like really, no, don't read Facebook forums on <laughs> it, but dive in don't. <laughs> to some find, there is so much scientific journalism out there yeah. that is accessible, and we can learn about these processes a little bit more, yeah. and maybe as, and the, the, the term is changing from citizen science To community science, ooh, I like that. And this is really, and it's it's and it makes total sense. Why should you have to be a citizen? Sure. You know, it's. I was with a
1: group of citizen is a bit of a trigger word for some people. Totally, it is,
0: and and it and it should be. And I was with a group of uh, marine protected area managers from Indonesia a couple weeks ago, and um, this came up, and it's Mm. it's like, can you not engage because you're not a citizen here? No,
1: it's community science. Sure. So. well, and it makes it it makes it that much closer to home because you have a community wherever you are in the world, regardless of your citizenship.
0: Yep, yeah, and it's it's a huge opportunity. And there's so many tools out there now. With you know, iNaturalist is a great mm-hmm. app that we use a lot with students. Talked um, about that with Nick. Yeah, he was as, getting me psyched on it. Yeah, yes. it's it's really cool as a plan B from when we can't do the the community science right, research right. that we hope to do. Then yeah. okay, let's pull out our phones right, and right. the danger of that is you get people just staring at a iPhone screen and well, not outside, at what yeah. we're trying to do. But hopefully so they're more conscious about how they
1: engage it. Yeah. I'm sure so, they are. I think inherently you would be. Yeah. And we're, we're like, what drives you to document is that you, right. The, you know, the preset is that you love nature. And right. Want to be in it. And we
0: try to spend kind of more time addressing that. But I think as surfers, we need to recognize our knowledge and recognize mm. our awareness and step beyond the boundaries of our home break because sometimes we get so worried about that, mm. that you know, if there's an imminent threat to your home break, then boom, let's mobilize. Mm. Let's, you know, let's protect what you want to keep enjoying um, for you and for generations to come. But step beyond the boundaries and think of these global processes and the connectivity mm. that exists in the world that we, are, we can witness, we see it. I mean, I've been watching the smoke from these fires when I've gone surfing and then looking at seeing um, weather reports in Philadelphia that has a haze from the smoke from the California fires, that right there shows the connectivity of our atmosphere. Right. And just being out in the water, you witness it, you see it, gets you to think about these global processes really a little bit. Yeah. And then maybe that stems to the climate change denialists, right. who we do surf with. Sure. They're out oh, there. Yeah. yeah. Like maybe a majority. Unbelievable. Somehow. Somehow. So, yeah. <laughs> and... And think, okay, so if, you know, but maybe they think it's all fake news, but I think if we recognize these, these processes that really exist at a global scale and the connectivity is there, yeah, then we can start really to make a difference in this long-term no, campaign. total
1: sense. Yeah. And it's almost, um, this is going back again to before we were recording, but you were talking to me about this book that you just brought over, which is. What's Nature and Joy, Michael yeah. McCarthy. Yeah, okay. well, it's, it's The Moth Snowstorm is okay. the title of the book. And the way that you were summarizing it was that it's it's kind of about bringing back that um, the, the value of the direct experience, you know, and getting out of your head, you know, being a little bit less cerebral, less cognitive, and just kind of more perceptive yeah. and visual and visceral. And um, and it's funny because as you were t- giving me that example of like, hey, yeah, you know, I, I said we had some knowledge. You said, yeah, but, and it's true to say the big but part because, we're not doing much with that innate knowledge. You know, we we know it and we have that intuitively, but we haven't really fully understood it. And it's really important to go educate yourself. But what pops out to me is that it almost seems like and I'm speaking to the stereotypes, but if the surfer and the natural scientists, they kinda need to swap roles for a bit in terms of mindset, you know, because mm, the surfer mm-hmm. is all about the direct experience for the most part and like whatever, the presence, the here, the now, you mm-hmm. know that fleeting joyride at the very end of that, you know, hundred thousand mile transition of the cycling storms. Mm-hmm. Whereas a scientist is a little bit too sometimes biased in the way of seeing it as all the systems, but not necessarily appreciating the direct, right. Exchange. All equations to yeah. the point that it, so just kind of, I don't know why that's kind of a side point, but it just, I was just imagining literally like, you know, lab scientists, you know, switching for a day, yeah. a surfer and surfer switching, you know.
0: Yeah, and they're out there. There's the surfing scientists that experience, well, and, 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 yeah. and a lot of them have very kind of noble um, yeah. professions, and they're working on the front lines on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. The scientist side of them kind of keeps them, you know, a little bit at bay yeah. from yeah. from broadcasting these yeah. issues outside the
1: silo. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, Cliff Capono, who you know, he, he, to me, is, like, such a, a amazing he's example. He's totally one of them. He, he's kind of, uh, in my mind, almost, like, archetypical figure. Yeah. You know. But he's not afraid to share the story. No. But, I mean, he comes f- from, a, from an early age, a very well-educated, well-rounded understanding mm-hmm. of how things are, mm-hmm. but also before that, from an right. area where he was immersed in nature, and that's really what drove his curiosities, you know kind of speaking for him but i think that's more or less where he was going with it when i talked to him yeah absolutely um but anyways yeah that yeah people can walk you know both those lines and wear both those hats and and really it's they're not separate Mm -hmm. it's just integrating of two different mind frames Mm -hmm. you know or or perspectives Mm -hmm. yeah
0: yeah Mm -hmm. and it i mean it doesn't have to be you don't have to be a surfing scientist um right to to recognize that and but if you tap into that anecdotal knowledge that is so much a reality and thinking of like Arctic indigenous tribes and the Inuit and they've been sharing story on how they live, how, how you harvest resources and how to be, um, how to survive essentially yeah. for time immemorial. Now they're sharing that with a disclosure. Right. To their youth. They're right. saying, this is how we've done things. Yes. Forever. Right. <laughs> but... It's changing, yeah. And it's up to you to figure out because we don't know anymore. And so it's and that's an
1: important point too is we just don't know. We don't know, but we, we don't do know. know
0: a lot. We know a lot, and we need to pay attention to the models and the trends, yeah. and listen to the science. And why not listen to the extremists? Why not? Because Everyone wouldn't you be, heard. be better prepared for the worst yeah.
1: than underprepared? Yeah. I mean the you know the inner you know dark humored darwinianism in me is like you can't fix stupid you know and it's just like mm, be okay if those people didn't keep showing up in this world but uh, <laughs> but for better or worse I, yeah you know they're human and they deserve respect and everyone does and yeah. we should all have a voice yeah. i hope i hope that our leadership so. changes and if we can
0: get more decision makers in office we being i mean everybody right not from any side but if more decision makers in science that are decision makers out there that believe in science Mm. and know how to mitigate and adapt to the changes that we're seeing effectively and share that with people so they're not afraid of it and not afraid to elect those people in office then we have success because ultimately that's a lot of what we listen to and that's a lot of what the a lot of people listen to, you know, Trump's very grandiose statements, and, and pff, I don't even know what to call it. It's a, it, I think it's called a gish gallop, where you yeah put, you put so many falsities in one yeah. statement that you don't even know where to begin I just call to it verbal diarrhea, that. But yeah, that's nice. I so like it's that, that kind of, it doesn't help. Well, it's incoherent. I mean, dude. totally incoherent. And, but whatever, that it gets people going. Yeah, it's such a lure. Yeah. So we need, we need, we need sound.
1: Balanced, logical, rational people yes. in office. <laughs> well, shit. Uh, I feel a little more optimistic, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Me, I do too. Leading we up to this, kind of yeah. Um, um, all sides of it. I, feel I mean,
0: like. it's. I think the most people need to connect with nature. Yeah, they really do. Yeah, get out there. And not just going and seeing a park or going to the beach, but thinking about it when you're there. Yeah, connect. Think about it. Or engage with it in a way that forces you to think about right. it. Right. Yeah. You know. Camping in the wilderness,
1: survive. Totally. Honestly. Do you scare it. the shit out of
0: yourself? Right. You'll
1: pay a little bit closer attention.
0: Sure. I think that's that's really important, and more people need to do it.
1: I mean, I'm not saying go do stuff that might kill you. Right. But. <laughs> but. Well, maybe for some. Of you, go but. Ahead. <laughs> no, it's. I think it's important, and <laughs> and
0: but just to go go with it go into nature thinking critically about the things that you see. Yes, yes. That's that's important, I think you'll learn a lot and you'd be surprised. You'd be tapping into your pre-fertile crescent self, which is deeply ingrained in every human is our ability to interact and survive in nature and you'll tap into
1: that. It's primordial, It's there. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, that's beautiful, I like that closing in there. I'll, I'll um, we'll just wrap up here asking you the signature questions I've been asking every guest so far. Um, and that first one is what is your earliest memory of water, in any form? <sighs> bath time. Yeah,
0: bath time, and that, that's come back to me now that I give baths to my children, right. and it's a nightly frickin' occurrence. Hundreds of old memories. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're at what seven hundred some days of bath time with our <laughs> two-year-old, and and then four months of bath time with the other, and wow. yeah, it's you see, the, it, I can take a crying baby. Put him in the bath. Stop. Wow.
1: I would imagine that on a very primal level is is uh, mimicking the womb. Totally. State. Yeah. Totally. And that freedom, you know, naked, yeah, squirming right. around, splashing, mellowed out. It's warm, and I
0: mean, I need it. It's- rubber deckies there if i'm not surfing i'm taking showers (laughs) i need water oh yeah doesn't speak to my water conservation no that's cool that's the
1: first time someone's (laughs) brought up uh bathing and it makes total sense (laughs) it really does (laughs) um so the last one would just be uh if there's one thing that you could leave our listeners with um that might enable all of us to better surf the waves of life what might that be we already taught get out nature
0: yeah. and think about it when you're there. Yeah. Um, that's to me fundamentally important. Yeah. Back to the climate change part, think about the products that you buy. Avoid those that cause deforestation. Do some research, palm oil for example. Yeah. Let's save Indonesia's rainforests um, and not buy products with palm oil on it. Do the best we can to avoid that. We all need to consume less, I think. if we can, We're not gonna stop using plastics tomorrow but if you use half as much, think about that. Or if you eat half as much meat, that makes an impact. Let's cut our consumption of the more degrading things that we consume in half. Um, I think we need to read the documents and read the literature a little bit more. Let's get off Facebook and, and find the study that's yeah. being cited and read that and interpret that for yourself and believe the science as much as you believe the science behind finding a cure for cancer. and, and
1: vote yeah
0: and i think this last election cycle is a testament to people mobilizing and understanding Absolutely. and appreciate of that uh, the value of that so
1: um so let's pay keep. attention engage immerse mm-hmm. and, and it's it's anticipate. ongoing yeah beautiful love it yeah thanks, thanks evan yeah thanks for coming <laughs> on that was rad That's gonna do it for our show today, everybody. If you enjoyed your time with us and or were turned on by something you heard, please take the time to tell a friend or a loved one. It's listener recommendations and support from people like you that keep this show growing. Special thanks this week goes out to Ryan Claus, who produced our new intro song to the show. Ryan, I love the work you do, and I'm grateful for your skill and generosity, as well as your lifelong friendship. Additional thanks goes out to those of you that have been reaching out with feedback and reviews. It's super helpful to the growth of the show, and I much appreciate receiving the written reviews in iTunes, but mainly it just makes my day, if not week or month, and truly helps stoke my flame. I love hearing from all of you about what you're connecting with most in each episode and or where in the world you're tuning in to the show. If you think of it, drop me a line next time you're listening to one and let me know what's going on in your world. As always, if you'd like to know more about the show or get in touch with me directly, you can visit our website at offshoreinsightspod.com. That's www.offshoreinsights Followed by the letters po Today, I'm going to leave you with some positive vibrations by one of my all-time favorites, Mr. Ray Barbee, with Find Enjoyment. Until next time, be well, keep in touch, and enjoy the ride.